get sneaky. Laurie Rose, the two-time winner, takes the lead from Faulkner. That's the way they finish the first lap. Welcome to another episode of Pit Lane Parlay. I am your host, Mike Jokum. Matt is here. We have plenty of IndyCar and Texas to talk about, but first, I want to send our condolences to the Unser family for uh, Bobby Unser passing away on Monday, I believe it was. I obviously didn't see him race when I was growing up, but my dad said he was... Kind of like uh, if you were to compare him to a, a current driver, similar to a actually similar to a Pato Award, somebody who didn't really care about necessarily saving tires or saving fuel and just was kind of a, a genuine badass and, and gave it 110 percent every lap at every, every track he ran. So uh, very, very sad to see three time Indy 500 winner and obviously one of the most famous names in, in racing and a very nice guy, even in his uh later years i talked to him briefly in the elevator at ims a couple years ago i don't know if you have anything to add or we can go on yeah obviously three-time indy 500 champion so he knew what he was doing there and i think outside of that he was a he was a great commentator too with uh sam posey and paul page i think they made a great team uh, all those years for cart and then i think uh, danny sullivan came along the way it was just sullivan and page but i thought he had a lot of great insights there and once told Sam Posey that he was wrong about uh, Little Al's braking abilities. I thought that was funny to do that live on air. So just uh, thinking of the answer family, obviously it's a big loss for the IndyCar community, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And um, I'm sure there's a lot of people in Albuquerque who are, you know, thinking of the answer family right now. So we'll, uh, we'll keep them in our thoughts. So Texas, before we dive into the replays or, reviews replays reviews whatever it doesn't even matter anymore matt you were there on saturday what were your at track observations thoughts did we get any food reviews that are about to be published yeah we got one coming one has just been published i'll share it here soon i forgot to turn my camera sideways again (laughs) (laughs) like it's my first one of the year okay so uh yeah the first one i did a selfie review while i was waiting for Sammy and my buddy able to show up, and then the other I did four more that I had camera support for. So Texas, it's huge. I, I obviously know it's a big track, but man, you get there and it's just massive. Uh, Meteor Center is quite cool. Uh, it's actually it was a suite in the front stretch towards the sword or just after start finish. Uh, so that was a great view of of practice there. Got to talk to Krista uh, Hardy and. Dejewski in the in the press box that was really cool and um staff was very friendly so thank you texas for allowing me the access there it was really nice of you guys uh food reviews are coming soon and then yeah the race was uh i personally i know how races work i know that when you are alive in person you definitely get more of the full scope especially in ovals where you can see the whole track Versus when you're watching on TV and they maybe are just focused on the front three while Marcus Erickson's sending it on someone in the back of the field and they don't show it. So, like, you know, I get that sense there. 
Uh, and then, you know, I'm checking Twitter and everybody's freaking out about how bad the race is. And I'm not saying it doesn't look great on TV because it probably didn't. At least that first one didn't. But uh, I think in person, you get definitely more of a feel for it. And you also see a lot more action. The ends of the stints were were phenomenal at race one. Uh, I'm I'm guessing that you guys didn't get that sense on TV, maybe. Uh, but it was a lot of fun at, at the track and, uh, definitely made me appreciate Texas a little more. So thanks to, thanks again to them for letting me there. Honestly, I have plenty to say that could be critical of Texas, but I mean, listen, Saturday was far from you know the most exciting, close to the exciting race I've ever watched. But, you know, those ends of the stints, like you mentioned, were, were pretty nuts. And I know we were only seeing probably a quarter of what, you know, you and people at the track were seeing. So I kind of just like accepted it that, listen, that's what I'm going to get because I'm on TV and, and, you know, didn't, uh, you know, didn't get too hung up on it. But race one recap, uh, top five, Scott Dixon, uh, Scott McLaughlin with his first career podium in his first career oval race, Pato Ward with his first podium of the year, Alex Polo and Graham Rahal. And where do we want to start here? All right, let's start with Joseph Newgarden, who didn't had, had a I don't know what what did you make of the Newgarden Bourdais thing? Because everybody has very different standpoints on this. Yeah, I was actually uh, I was fortunate to have my eyes trained on that as it happened, and you know I, I only realized till after the crash I'm like that was Newgarden like as he was going down the backstretch I couldn't tell who hit him but then I. You know, once I figured it out, it was like, wow, I can't believe Newgarden just hit him. So, you know, you know, looking at the replay, I do sympathize for him. I think uh penalty might have been pretty harsh. I'm not I wouldn't definitely I wouldn't consider it avoidable contact. I'm not sure there was a whole lot Newgarden can do. I mean, Herdo was going very slow through the exit of turn two with I'm assuming his very old tires. And if memory serves me correct, Harvey had just passed Herda. So I'm assuming that may have disturbed the air for Herda even more. So then Bourdais was there, and then Newgarden arrived on the scene, and Bourdais lifted to avoid running in the back of Herta, and Newgarden just didn't have the time to check up. So I'm not entirely sure what Newgarden is supposed to do on that. You know, sending him to the back, I think, is the nicest penalty they could have given him. You know, I think a drive-through would have been really harsh. I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess my point is I'm not sure what Newgarden was supposed to do on that one. I don't think it wasn't, like, deliberate or anything. No, I think it was one of those racing deals. I'm fine with calling it avoidable contact, especially since they just sent him to the back. Obviously, he rebounded to finish sixth, so he had a good rest of the race. Probably took him out of podium contention, but listen, it's it's tough. Herta was definitely slow, and Bourdais slowed down, so there wasn't really anywhere for Newgarden to go, and I don't know if there was room behind him. Maybe he could have slowed down, but now you're now you're just splitting hairs to to find a reason. Listen, in the end, not a huge deal. Sucks for Bourdais, obviously, because he got taken out in the melee on Sunday. But uh, James Hinchcliffe also had a rough crash towards the end after Felix Rosenquist passed him, I think it was. It was a car with blue on it. Yep, it was really and nice. he went up into the wall, had no had no air to you know got that wave of dirty air cracked into the wall, and then the big story of the weekend was, I guess Jack Harvey and his 
on track defense, let's call it. So first was Alex Rossi. I didn't really think the Alex Rossi, Jack Harvey thing was really anything that needed to like be talked about more. And then people really seem to talk about it on social media. So let's start there. Any thoughts? Were you fine with no penalty on, on that one? I was fine with no penalty on both of them. Yeah. I think the the Rossi one was worse, in my opinion. Agree. It, it, I know it's restart, and I know everybody's kind of on top of each other there, but I think it's uh, either he wasn't getting the best spotter knowledge or he wasn't uh, checking his mirror. But in the trial oval, the worst thing you could do is put someone in the grass. That's that's pretty dangerous. So, again, I don't know if he just didn't get the call or what, but I think if, if someone's – it, it, even if they're in the wrong, if someone's trying your inside in the trial, well, you kind of have to give it to them because Rossi thankfully saved it. But if he doesn't save that, that's a massive crash for everybody behind him. That's, you know, an eight car crash in the making. So I, uh, I'm fine with the no penalty. I just, it's kind of just a coaching moment for next time. Cause I was definitely on the verge of very unsafe. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know if it was a spotter thing or just, you know, this is only the, second time he's been at Texas and and the first time he's really been on pace at Texas. So uh, I'm fine. Listen, I'm fine with that one. All right. Graham Rahal. So obviously going down the back straight, Graham goes to make him is prepping to make a move. The replay shows that Harvey dives down first in anticipation of a Rahal move, which is technically legal. I, Let's let's get your thoughts on it first, and then we'll discuss the <laughs> the discussion after the race. Yeah, this one, I mean, dangerous, sure. Yeah, I I mean, you're, that's definitely uh, putting the passing car in a compromising situation, especially if they can't get it executed by the time we get to the banking. So that's uh, it's pretty risky, but. You know, watching the races back, Harvey was definitely not the only person doing that. It's not like he was the big bad wolf out there doing this over and over again. You know, other people were doing it as well. That seems more like a race control issue, like, you know, making like enforcing the fact that you can't go below the white line. So, like, if you are Graham Ray Hall and Harvey puts his car there, then you're going to have to go to the outside or something. Or you could turn it back on Harvey and say that he forced Ray Hall below the white line and therefore Harvey gets the penalty, but that, that turns into kind of a slippery slope. So I think, you know, just coming up with some system saying you just can't go down there, I think would be a start. But given the circumstances and the fact that others were doing the exact same, I think Harvey was technically fine with what he did. And I, I didn't see too much of an issue with it given the laws of the race. Yeah. I mean, the rules of the race show you can't be reactive, but you can be proactive. And if you look at the replay, Jack Harvey clearly moved first. It was dangerous, yeah. It wasn't too much different than the Simon Pagano-Alex Rossi battle at the 500 in 2019. Seemed similar to that. So, yeah, listen, it's it. I feel bad for Graham because he definitely had the pace to get by Harvey there and... and maybe go up the field a little bit more than he did, but I don't see any issue with that. Now, after the race, Graham Rahal, in a very measured response, I don't think he was kind of out of line with his interview, said, hey, listen, Jack Hart, Jack and I, we need to talk. 
you know, just man to man need to talk. Okay, fine. Jack Harvey asked about it. He says he knows where to find me. Obviously, the IndyCar broadcast tried to make that a, I don't know, a battle royale that wasn't there. But do you have any issue with Graham's response or Jack's response or, or anything along those lines? I didn't think Harvey versus Ray Hall was the rivalry that we needed to get us through that Saturday. That was kind of fun. I think I have like a general comment, I guess, about post-race interviews by drivers or just any sort of interview by drivers is that if Graham Ray Hall got out of the car and the interviewer asked him, hey, you brought the car home P5. Looks like you guys had a great race. Tell me what your thoughts were about the race. If the first thing that he said was, well, that damn Jack Harvey, I need to go teach him a lesson. Then I could see that where it's be like, wow, Graham Ray Hall's whiner. Graham Ray Hall needs to shut up and drive, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if he gets out of the car and the first question that he's asked is, what happened there with Jack Harvey? I think Ray Hall's kind of inclined to give a direct answer. As long as he's not, you know, I think overbearing or too harsh. There's nothing wrong with what he said. You know, he said, I need to have a talk with him. I didn't like what he did, et cetera, et cetera. People on social media were saying, you know, like, Graham Rahal's a whiner. I, I don't like Graham Rahal anymore for what he said. It's like, well, what is he? If, if he's asked a question about Jack Harvey, is he just supposed to say, hey, I would, uh, I'm going to go get some ice cream with him and, and laugh about how he just blocked me down the backstretch? Like, I'm not sure what he's supposed to answer there to make people happy. Yeah. He's had his moments where he's blamed other people, but. I really have no issue with the actual response. He he wasn't blaming Jack Harvey. He just said, hey, I just want to talk to him and see what was up. That's kind of how I took what he said. Yeah, and I think that would also apply to other drivers. You know, I think Will Power has a tendency to give direct answers. We know Sebastian Bourdain gives direct answers. And I think if you are someone who's interviewing them and asks them a direct question, I think the fans at home need to understand that if they're asked specifically to talk about it, they're going to give a direct answer. Whether you like it or not, that's just kind of their opinion, especially he was, what, five minutes removed from the cockpit? Like, it was just fresh in his yeah. head. So I, I definitely appreciate the fact that Graham Ray Hall was honest enough to just, like, say, like, hey, I need to go talk to him because I didn't, I didn't like it. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that because, you know, emotion is good, especially when it's emotion curtailed with rationality. He wasn't being obtuse with his comments. He was very smart with what he said, and I, I appreciated it. So... Sorry, I don't know if it was you who said this on social media or if I read it, but it's like if Graham comes out and says, yeah, I need to talk to him like he did, people are crucifying on social me- crucifying him on social media. But then again, if he says nothing, people are also crucifying him on social media. It's like no matter what Graham Rahal does in that case, people were going to be angry on social media, which is really insufferable. Yeah, and it's like, you know, like I said, if he's asked a question about it, what is he supposed to say? Yeah. So... Anyways, we can put that one to bed probably. Uh, it made for some fun times on social media, I guess. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, so if you do think Graham Rahal's a whiner, I mean, we do have evidence of the past of him whining. I, I don't think this was one per no. se, but he has done it before for sure. Uh, race two, Pato Award gets his first career win, so congrats to Pato. Yeah. Big, uh, big Pato guys on this podcast here. Uh, Newgarden finished second. No penalties this race for him. Ray Hall third. Dixon fourth, despite leading 130-something laps. And Colton Herta finishing fifth. Obviously, the major headline for this race, other than Paddle winning, was that insane crash at the start. Uh, To recap it, 
they were coming to green, the green flag waved and right around row four or five, people started checking up and Pietro Fittipaldi ran in the back of Bordet. Bordet slid into the inside lane and hooked Rossi and then calamity ensued in total. I think seven or eight cars, seven, yeah. seven cars retired. Uh, the scariest part was Connor Daly arriving at the scene, and I've watched a fan replay of it from the stands. And I guess this is going to be something we talk about once we get past our driver of the day and disappointment of the day. Connor Daly was kind of late arriving to the scene. You know, he was not packed up to the grid yeah. when the green flag waved, and that's not Connor Daly's fault. That's you know everybody's really sprawled out, and so he's just trying to hustle to get to the group. So it's not really anything he did wrong. Uh, but when he showed up, he had much more speed than everybody else. And so when he tried to follow Hinch through the gap, he hit Kellett and somebody else and then flipped his car and thankfully didn't hit the fence and all the safety improvements and whatnot did their jobs. So he was completely fine as far as what I've read. So um, a lot of torn up cars. So what were your, first of all, there were opinions out there that Pietro Fittipaldi causes crash. Wanted to get your thoughts on that. And then secondly, um, we can just do this debate now, I guess. Is, yeah. is is there anything that we need to do with the start procedures? Because this also happened in a, you know, obviously less violent form in Gateway last year. Uh, kind of the same thing. So, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, even Graham Rahal said in the post-race press conference on Sunday that he, he did feel like the guys at the front were were going pretty slow. So... I don't, I'm not putting the blame on Fittipaldi. I think, you know, as a driver, you're taught when you see the green flag, you, you, you hustle, you get going. And, and obviously he was just a little trigger happy there with everything going on in front of him. So I I don't think there's necessarily like, you can't blame, let's say Scott Dixon up front for going slow because he sets the pace going to the green flag at the same time. Fittipaldi is just trying to react what's going on around him and just ran out of breaking room. So I, it's like one of those racing deals that just has a lot of facets to it. So I have a hard time really blaming like one, like I don't think you can pin it on one guy or, or one thing. It was, it was like, you know, slow cars at the front maybe, or in the midfield, some guys checked up, some guys saw the green flag and went and, you know, guys like Connor Daly are starting last, so they're kind of catching up, and and they see that green flag, and they try to go for a spot that Hinchcliffe, uh, you know, barely snuck through, and obviously the rest is history. So I'm I'm honestly not gonna blame it on. I don't think it's right to blame it on one person or one thing. And then anything with the restart as or starting procedures as a whole that needs to be changed. I want to say like yeah, sure, because I don't want to see that happen again, but. Other than saying the leader has to accelerate by, you know, the green X on the track at a given track, what are you going to do? I don't think there's really, so I don't think there's much you can do. If the leader sets the pace, you have to follow the leader and accept the risks that sometimes this thing is going to happen because some people get more trigger happy. So unless you say, listen, 200 feet before the start finish line, there's a proverbial green X that Scott Dixon must start accelerating at. I think that's the only thing you can do. 
Yeah, and I guess, well, first of all, no, it's not Fittipaldi's fault, and anybody implying otherwise, I think, is it's ridiculous to blame him for that. I, I was trying to think of several examples I could use of this same thing happening. I mean, Grand Rahal turned Piggott in Pocono in 2018. There was Gateway last year. Uh, one of the years at Barber, someone spun a lotion in Munoz or yeah. something. Um, but it, this isn't like the first time this has happened. And each time it's happened, I've never seen, you know, someone just like blatantly at fault. Uh, Rayal Pocono was a little iffy. He was going way faster than everybody else. But um, no, this one, I mean, you know, what is Fittipaldi supposed to do? He, it's, if Bourdais in front of him checks up at the last second while he's on the full throttle, there's only so much reaction time a human can have to do something about it. So, I don't blame that on him. I hope he's not beating himself up over it because, yeah, I think anybody could see that. It wasn't really like something that was blatantly his fault. And then I do think there is something that can be done. I think um, I think that last pace lap, they could go a little slower. I was thinking like specifically the leaders. Like if they get to turn one, they can, they can start to slow down a little bit or, you know, allow the field to catch up because, you know, one of the observations I had from the first race was, you know, when they threw the – one to go sign for the the race start and the leaders are crossing crossing like start finish line and the rear of the field was exiting turn two and i'm like that is a large gap for them to catch yeah. in not a lot of time yeah. especially when the field's gonna be super slow so i don't think you know like with daily going full bore to catch the field as the green flags being dropped i don't think that should ever happen and again it's not daily's fault but i i don't know if cars need to be a little closer together when they're warming up their tires or if they need to go slower on that last lap and start forming up in turn one instead of the halfway down the back stretch i think there's something that can be done but that's a good point i didn't i mean you could say that for ovals or non-ovals that that whole last lap right. you need to be packed up instead of like the last two corners that's a fair point because I was I was watching Grosjean's uh, first lap on board that he posted on his YouTube, and if you if you see it, he uh, he does he's like row four or five. Yeah. He's he's not back in the back of the field. And that fast left right before like the turn and the pit entrance, he's like just now like where Jimmy Johnson spun is basically where he f- filled into his gap. And I'm like, why are we filling in our gaps? You know. I, less than half a mile before the start finish line. I think it's like a you know a third of a mile. Uh, basically, he filled he filled his spot with like half a turn to go. So, I I think they should maybe gap car or not gap cars. They should start to grid cars a little sooner when their formation before we get there. Because I think you know like Indy they start to do it the extra turn too, but they have you know a mile and a quarter to go before they get to the start finish. So. That's plenty of time. I don't understand why they don't don't do that at more tracks. So, I think that's something that could be done to maybe help a little per se. Um. Anyways, yeah, glad everybody got out of that safe. Glad Connor was all right because that was pretty nasty. Yep. But, uh, Pato gets his first career win. I think it was a long time coming because he's had a couple of close calls here. A wanted to get your thoughts on that. That and then B. <laughs> not going to leave it up to opinion here. Why was race two so much better than race one? So, first off, you know, big congrats to Pato. I still remember one of the first in-person interviews I ever did was on stage with him at Gateway a few years ago when it was literally like 120 degrees. And he took a lot of time. He had some really funny answers. 
probably that an IndyCar team wouldn't be too thrilled with, but Indy Lights was, I guess, not as not as worried about that, and it was pretty funny. But I also want to give a shout out to Taylor Kyle because the team put him in a really good position strategy wise on Saturday to you know, be out on fresher tires, maybe a little bit before everybody else and, and keep pace and obviously gave him just enough fuel to make it home on, on Sunday for the win. So the team who's kind of put him in a couple rough spots over the last year and a quarter, put him in a, in a really good spot all weekend, but great to see. And I think why was Sunday? Yes. Sunday was the first half of the race. I was going, Oh no, Scott Dixon's going to lead like 198 laps and and win hands down and everybody is literally going to blow up over Texas. I man, there was just there was a lot going on. I don't know if it was because they raced there twice and that bottom lane was rubbered in, but guys were guys were getting pretty ballsy with their passes and there was just there was a lot going on everywhere on track, you know, everywhere you looked. Ray Hall was making a charge for the lead. It's almost like Saturday was practice and they figured out, okay, if I back off a little bit heading into turn one or turn three, I can use the corner to build up momentum and make a pass on the straightaways. And that strategy seemed to really work for Ray Hall made a couple moves. Obviously Jack Harvey made a couple moves on a restart. I think he went from like six to third. Pato went from, Pit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on! Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Fifth to third on the last restart before obviously eventually winning. Yeah, I mean, there was just everywhere you looked, there was somebody lining up another pass like they figured something out. Yeah, and I think the yeah, I mean you're right. There was a lot more courage shown on uh, the Sunday race, and I don't know. I thought um, I thought that you saw a couple examples of guys making the PJ one work just slightly. If they only had two tires on there, they were, seemed like they some yeah. people could make it work There's pretty a few well. Who tried they, and did okay. Yeah, Paddle was definitely one of them. I thought that was pretty cool. I th- I really liked the race. I mean, Paddle almost threw it away when he was uh, fighting with power and had two wheels in the apron, which is a big no-go on a high bank track so the fact that he saved that was pretty incredible and yeah i mean to be honest i'll kind of segue into my next reign here uh i'm really glad dixon would win that second race i mean <laughs> obviously scott dixon's the goat 
and obviously he's a phenomenal driver. There's nobody, nobody's taking that away from him. I just thought if there was ever a weekend where not where we didn't get qualifying, this is a really bad one to not have it. For the first race, there was no qualifying because it rained on Saturday, and they did ownership points. And I'm like, oh man, like Polo got pole, got a point, and in Polo's defense, was fast in the race, but in practice, he wasn't very quick. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, you know, if we did qualifying, like, you know, standard normal qualifying, I feel like Pelot would have qualified 12. But since he didn't, he basically followed Dixon for most of the race and, and got a pretty good, decent haul of points. And you got other guys in the back of the field who had really strong cars who just couldn't pass because it was just the conditions and the, the track surface and whatnot. So, you know, this wasn't like Iowa where you could just make your way up or Indianapolis where you could just make your way up. Like, this is a ridiculously hard place to pass that first night on a relatively green track. So I was pretty bummed that qual- I understand why there was no qualifying for Saturday. I just, as the fan in me, I was pretty bummed because I knew it would be a little bit processional. That second race though, as Rossi and Daly ranted about, I have no idea why we didn't qualify. I mean, the race started at four fifteen central time and there was nothing before that. So I know it's technically written in the rules that way. I just don't understand why we couldn't have them go qualify because then it was like Dixon was on pole again and he led like 130-some laps. And I was like, oh, God, here we go again. Like Dixon's going to really come out of this with two wins without having, you know, he didn't, not saying he didn't work for it. He was just kind of in the front and minding his own business like the entire time. So I would have been quite disappointed if that's the way it, you know, had shaken out because I don't feel like Dixon would have, quote unquote deserved that um kind of a the worst weekend to have a rain out for qualifying in my opinion yeah like so you know the race is at 4 15 central time why don't you do qualifying at 10 so that way you know qualifying is essentially 10 to 11 let's say so you've got five hours to you know make any repairs if if god forbid you have an accident like and, and that's also enough time for teams to have you know a little bit of downtime to rest before a race so i yeah i don't know why we didn't do qualifying i know technically it's in the rule book that way but i don't agree with that one at all yeah and it's such a small sample to go in the weekend having only had two races so far to you know sorted by points like i get the first race there's not a whole lot you can do with the tv window and all that stuff and the practice time was vital but you know let's you know unfortunately say there is a seven car pileup at the start of the race as there was in the second race, every single car that got taken out was already at the bottom of the, you know, the points as far as the championship goes. So it was literally just like the rich got richer and the poor got poorer on Sunday. It was quite sad to see. I mean, you know, and some of the guys in that poorer category, I don't think should be there. Kanan shouldn't have been back there. He was fast. Rossi. Rossi shouldn't have been back there. He was fast. Bourdais shouldn't have been back there. He was fast. So it was kind of just like a really unfortunate situation for some of the guys back there because I don't feel like they belonged. But, you know, given the circumstances, they started back there and then there was a giant crash that they couldn't avoid. So really sucks for them. I, I yeah, it was just really bad circumstances. Last thing to rant about, obviously, a big conversation piece of the weekend as we get to Texas every year is how bad the track is now for IndyCar between the redesign of turn one and two and the PJ1 that they threw on the high grooves to help make NASCAR, quote-unquote, better has made everything worse. Eddie Gossage has come out on social media and stated that there will be no repave because it's virtually new. Uh, they can't grind it because that'll ruin the surface. They're experimenting with this 
substance that can potentially like suck the PJ one out of the track. I'm no scientist, but I'm not really buying that, but he's adamant that they're not going to be repave. And if we're being honest with ourselves, given the financial state of IndyCar and how big of a supporter Eddie Gossage is of IndyCar, this track's not going anywhere. So I know some of you out there don't like the fact that IndyCar goes to Texas because it's not as good as it used to be. I think we maybe just need to adjust our expectations a little bit going forward, knowing that it might be a snooze or it could be like Sunday. Sunday was actually a pretty fun race, all things given. So what are your thoughts about the political landscape with IndyCar in Texas and the fact that we might be kind of just stuck with this for the next decade. So first thing is, I think it was Scott Dixon said he thinks, or Scott Dixon or Graham Rahal said he thinks if you just, that PJ one will fade over the next couple of years anyway. Not that that makes anybody feel better because that's still not tomorrow. But yeah, listen, IndyCar isn't going to go away from Texas because Eddie Gossage, you know, IndyCar kind of needs Texas and Eddie Gossage makes it happen. He was obviously willing to do a double header. And, you know, so it is what it is on that front. The really confusing thing was last night he said, what we saw on track isn't fair, but reality is traction compound for NASCAR will continue. And then today he said, need to find technique or chemical that pulls traction compound out of pores of the asphalt. So does that mean he still wants the traction compound, but it not to, you know, sink into the track? I don't know. It's very, he said a few mixed signals things in the last 24 hours. And I don't know if that's because he's gotten maybe some pressure from IndyCar or something, but I don't know what the solution is. The only like sort of logical and, solution i heard all weekend was okay if we're gonna have the traction compound why don't we just put make the whole like all of the turns the the entire turn top to bottom traction compound at least that way it's even but then my thought to that was as i think about it well then the indy cars would not be able to turn so that would be a, a a big disaster even if you made the whole track traction compound so maybe they just repave the corners so all the corners are the same, but man, I don't know if it was NASCAR putting pressure on Texas or Texas putting pressure on NASCAR for a better show, but PJ one might be the worst thing in racing in any like capacity. Yeah. I don't think putting PJ one down would help. I think it would make it. Yeah. I think the cars would become undrivable then, which would be kind of sad, but I don't, yeah, I'm not sure what the solution is. Um, other than a repave, but I don't, you know, like I said, I don't think this uh, chemical suction thing that they're going to try. I don't, I don't know if that'll work. Yeah. Like I said, I think we just kind of need to adjust our expectations. This track is going to race like a road course. Uh, it's just going to be a much higher speed. So you just have to time your passes. You have to, you know, there's a lot of corners and road courses where you can't go two by two. So it's just one of those things where I think, you know, once they get adjusted to it, they just got to time their passes. I don't know if, the arrow bits that IndyCar added helped at all, but I don't think this is a problem that IndyCar has. I don't think it's a Firestone problem. I don't think it's a chassis problem. I really just think it's a track surface just sucks. Maybe higher horsepower so you can draft easier, which, you know, is coming with the hybrid era. So that may be on the horizon. But um, anyways, as far as the whole weekend goes, now we're done ranting. Who was your driver of the weekend? 
can can you go first because I honestly I'm trying to remember where everybody finished. Yeah, I'll go with Pato with his first career win. Congrats, Pato. That's pretty awesome for you, man. Finished third in the first race too, and had one of the the best cars in traffic in that first race as well. So it's not like the second race was a fluke. He looked really strong all weekend and a uh, bummer for his teammate, Felix Rosenquist, because his teammate looked really good too. He just didn't have the results to show for it. Um, first race got kind of hosed with the hinge yellow and Marcus having his pit issue. And the second race, they sent him out with it without a tire on that really sucked. So um, Felix definitely had a stronger weekend than, what the results show, but Pato did great too. I will take Graham Rahal. Two top fives, including a podium. Had some some real good pace all weekend, so I'll take Rahal. Disappointment of the weekend, I am going to go with James Hinchcliffe. It's been a disappointing start to the year. Don't know if it's too much of a hot take. Makes me maybe wonder about Marco Andretti just a little bit. Marco Andretti didn't have very good results in this entry. Hinch is not having very good results in the century. I don't know. I'm Makes you go this one hmm. open to interpretation for everybody else out there because I don't disagree. Makes you go hmm just a little bit. I'm going to take his teammate in Ryan Hunter Ray, who finished 13th or 14th on Saturday, finished 10th on Sunday, but then again, like half the field was missing by the end of the race, so it was. He wasn't really ever competitive on on Sunday. So Ryan Hunter Ray also makes it go. Maybe it's mm. time to go. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's some hot seats forming between those two. Ed Jones, Felix, maybe just a little bit. Ed Jones for sure. Um, I think those are kind of the four on the hot seat right now. Uh, all right, recapping our predictions. Mike said Newgarden would do good. P6 and P2 uh, were his results this weekend. I had Pagano P10 and P6. I'll give myself a little pat on the back because Pagano did get royally screwed by that first yellow in the first race. Yep. So the fact that he climbed back to 10th was pretty good, but you had the better one in that one. Bad. You had Rosenquist, 13th asterisk, and 16th asterisk. And I had Hinch, 23 and 18. The second race, we can kind of give him. He had, I think he got damaged from that wreck. So yeah. his race was pretty much toast. But yeah, I think uh, I definitely won that. And I think Felix actually ended up doing pretty good. So that was good. You nailed the dark horse, though. Jack Harvey was brilliant all weekend. He was very fast. Uh, running top five in the second race till his uh, brakes failed, yeah. a la Herta race one. I Kanan. Kind of bummed about that because I don't think TK got to unleash his full potential this weekend. No, it's unfortunate that he obviously didn't have the gearing set right on Saturday and that kind of hampered his straightaway speed. And then Sunday, I don't know what happened, but he ended up in the pits at the end of the, during the caution. He was involved in the crash. Oh, right. He had some wing damage, right? So he had some wing damage. And then if you watch his onboard, he, I think he, probably slammed on the brakes as anybody would have. And it like slid him into the trial, trial wall, just he brushed it. So I'm assuming it probably knocked him out of alignment or something. Yeah. But while he didn't have catastrophic damage, I'm assuming he picked up enough to pretty much ruin his day. And he went three laps down immediately. So right. obviously that sucks. Um, 
We'll move on, though. Something that doesn't suck is Stefan Wilson is in the sixth Andretti Autosport car for the Indianapolis 500. Uh, he's got, I think it's called Lola Brands. It's a golf attire. Yeah. Called, golf clothing company. They are owned uh, by team partner, co-owner Cusick Motorsports and Don Cusick. So that's cool. So um, some of the other names floating around that seat were Oliver Askew and Oriole Serbia. But it is Stefan Wilson who did run with this team in 2018. Did lead like the last couple. Yeah, it was close. The last laps of that race is pretty insane. So congrats to Stefan. Uh, if you didn't see Mike chat with Stefan, that is on our podcast. So go check that out for some thoughts from Stefan on that. And then let's round out the episode with some happy news. Robert Wickens got to test a car at Mid-Ohio today. Uh, it's his first time back in a race seat in, I think, 989 days since his terrifying accident at Pocono. So that is enough to warm everybody's heart and cutting onions in the room because that's that's pretty awesome for him. And he's just an inspiration for everybody. Yeah, when... This is probably the best, yeah, the best bit of news we can end an episode with. Stefan Wilson and Robert Wickens, essentially in the same sentence. Yeah, listen to my chat with Stefan. Thank you to Andretti PR who reached out the night before the announcement to you set that up with me. I was wholeheartedly appreciated. And Robert Wickens, man, what a story! I. I I think he'll be racing at Mid Ohio in in a couple of weeks, and I don't think I'll be able to make it out there. But I will definitely tune in. I unfortunately still remember every detail of being at Pocono that day, so I can't wait to see him make a, his return to the car. That'll be really really cool to see, and uh, hopefully his recovery is is doing is is continuing well. It looks like it is at least from social media, but I'm I'm definitely some really nice happy moments to round out an episode where we've talked about Texas and other annoying things to start out the episode, but we'll wrap it up there. Unless Matt, we have anything else? No, Matt, nice work in Texas this weekend. Can't wait to see the food reviews. Even the one where you had the camera the wrong way. <laughs> they're, no, they're all up and down. Oh, 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 well, we'll just chalk this up to, you know, yeah, it was Texas. My first one in like nine months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, guys, there is F1 this weekend at Spain, so there's some racing to watch. I don't know. There might be NASCAR too. Not really not really going to be watching that one. So uh, tune in to F1, and we'll be back next week to preview the GMR Grand Prix. Today's podcast was presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. If you're a podcaster, you can apply too immediately and get connected with advertisers that fit your audience. Go to podgo.co at podgo.co and let them know that we sent you there. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. 
So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.